All right, John chapter 12, we made it all the way to verse number 27, where we'll be looking at a pretty big chunk, 27 through 36. Um, just for a point of reference, so Jesus is um, he's at the end of his life. So even though this is the middle of the book of John, what's going to take place um, in the book of John will take place just a, over a few short days, about a week's time. So this is about a week before Jesus is to die. And so that's what Jesus even means when he cries out, the hour has come, this hour of time. And so he starts off in verse number 27, John records for us, Jesus saying, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there, they heard it and they heard it said that it, and they thought that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, first and foremost, thank you for your word. That it guides us and instructs us that it is a revelation of who you are, of how you work, of what you've come to do. It gives us great insight. Like we can know about a historical figure in the person of Jesus. We can know about a a real historical event in your crucifixion, but your word instructs us and tells us what it's about, about the purpose of your life, Jesus, about the purpose of your death and what you're doing with that. And so give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see, Jesus, in this moment that we may see your word and we may savor it and we may know you more fully, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. Tons here in this text for us to unpack. Even it's like the thing for me is like, I'm reading the text and as I read it, I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna get to say that. I'm not gonna get to explain that. And so like, we're gonna move quickly, even though it's gonna be, uh, you know, 40 minutes or so, even though that we're still gonna, we're gonna move as quickly as we can through the text. But let me back up and just remind you why John is writing this. John is writing this gospel. He's writing this account and he tells us, we don't even have to guess at it. He tells us in the last chapter of the book of John, in the 21st chapter, he says that he's writing these things so that we, the hearers, the readers, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So Jesus is his name. Christ is the title that he's the Messiah, that he's the son of God. And then he says in that by believing this, that we would have life in his name. That, Jesus, that John is writing this, that we may believe in Jesus, but more than just believing in Jesus, more than just believing in historical Jesus or even affirming that Jesus was the son of God, even deeper than that, what it's really 
what's really the crux of the issue, the question that every one of us must answer is, is God trustworthy? See, when it says believing, it's not just affirming his existence, but the the real thing that God is after in our hearts and in our lives is our trust. It's to trust him. It's not just to believe him because you can say, hey, you know, I I believe in a great number of things and some of them are true and some of them are untrue. But what Jesus is really after, the revelation of Jesus is so that we may trust him. And what you must ask yourself, even this morning is, can I trust him? Is God trustworthy? Is he worthy of my trust? Not just my trust in trusting him for my eternity, not just in trusting him with my salvation, but what we talked about last last week, can you trust God with the all of your life? Can you trust God with the sum of your life? Can you trust God in real life circumstances? Not just in, even though it's a real life circumstance, your sin, but whenever the diagnosis comes and it's not the diagnosis you wanted to hear, when it's you or your mom or a loved one facing a hospice and having that discussion, the question you need to ask yourself and what you're figuring out in your own heart and in your own life and in your own mind and in your own soul is, is God trustworthy? Can I trust him with my all? When you're pinned against the decision whether to believe the world or to believe God's word, And oftentimes they will stand in contradiction to each other. God's word will declare one thing and the words of the world will say something else, whether it's coming through Facebook memes or advice from a friend or advice from a mom that will stand in contradiction to God's word. Which one can you believe? When your soul is anxious and troubled and you feel distressed, what will you believe? Can you trust God in his word or will you trust other things, other people, other ways. And so what this text is about, it's about this. This is the big picture that's happening in this text. The declaration of this text is this, that you can trust God in everything because everything that God does, he does for his own glory and for the good of his people. We'll leave that up for just a second. Now, that's something we say here at the Point Community Church often. And my fear is sometimes the more you say something, the the less it begins to mean. Right now, there are things that we say that still mean the same thing, but, you know, we say things all the time. And the more that we say it, the less it means. My little girl, Safira, our youngest, all the time she'll say, Daddy, I love you. I love you forever and ever. And she will say that 26 times in a day. And the first like 15 times she says it, you know, Sophia, I love you too, sweet. That's so sweet. Daddy loves you. I'm so, you know, whatever. But like by the end of the day, it's like, I know you love me, girl. And I go, you know what I mean? Even sweet things, even kind things, are, the more we say them, oftentimes the less we get, do you really mean that? And we say often here that everything God does, God does for his glory and for your good if you're one of his children. But listen to me. Don't let that just you know, don't let that just go in one ear and out the other. Like, hold on to that. That everything that God does, he does for his glory. And we'll talk about what does that mean. And everything that he does, he does for his own good. Listen, or or for the good of his people, that those aren't incongruent things. There's never anything that God is going to do for his glory that won't be for your good if you're one of his children. Everything that God is doing, he is doing 
to put on display his glory of who he is. And everything that he does falls in because it is for God's glory. It is also for your good, for your benefit, if you are one of his children. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Jesus is praying. In fact, that's what we're going to see throughout this text. Two things you're going to see with each point of this text of scripture that we have in here. The first thing you're going to see is how God is glorifying himself. But the second thing that I want you to pay attention to is how God is doing it for your benefit. But Jesus even says that I'm about to die. I'm about to be nailed to a cross. I'm about to be, take on the judgment of this world. And even in that, he is saying two things are happening. I'm doing it for the God's glory, that God's glory may be put on display. But second, look who benefits. And so let me give for you the four things that Jesus says that are gonna happen. The four ways that the Father will be glorified through Jesus's death and resurrection, and they're straight from the text. Verse number 31, A and B says this, number one, that God glorifies himself by judging the world. It's through Jesus's death that God is being glorified, but it's also through Jesus's death that believers will pass from the condemned state of death unto the life-giving state of justified in Christ. And in that, the Father will be glorified. Second, the father will be glorified. God glorifies himself by casting out the ruler of this world, who is Satan. But who benefits from that? We do. Number three, God glorifies himself by drawing all to himself. Jesus will be lifted up on the cross and we will be drawn to Christ. How were you drawn to Christ? Through the preaching and the sharing of the gospel which is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. So again, who benefits in that? We do. Number four, God glorifies himself by being the light of the world and the lives of those who believe in him. Let's look at the text. Verse number 27. We'll just go section by section. Verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? So I say, Father, save me from this hour. So the hour is the hour of his death. That's what he's referring to. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? But it's for this purpose. It's for this purpose that I've even come to this hour. And here's his prayer. Father, glorify your name. Now, first, let me just say this. When Jesus says here that my soul is troubled, what this instructs us is that Jesus is a real human being with real emotions. That's what that teaches us. Jesus isn't a superhero. Like my wife, she loves superhero movies. I don't love them. She loves all of the Marvel comic book. And if you do too, I'm not judging you. That's fine. But like for me, they're hard for me to watch. And here's why. I can't be entertained. And this says more about me than it does her. I can't be entertained in a world and fantasy where, where logic and, and, and natural law no longer matter. When you take logic and, and natural law out of the equation, like, I just, I go like, that wouldn't happen. No, of course it wouldn't happen. He's a comic book creature here, you know? So my, mom, my wife loves all of the Thor movies. I don't know why, but she does. <laughs> but there's one of the Thor movies where the Thor and the Incredible Hulk are fighting each other in a coliseum. And I'm like, please. You know, like Thor's a human and it's the Incredible Hulk, especially that 
Incredible Hulk. You know, like the Lou Ferrigno Incredible Hulk, he was intimidating, but not as intimidating as like the new CGI Incredible Hulk. And there's a scene in there where the Incredible Hulk like leaps out of the Coliseum all the way into the stratosphere and he comes down and like just nails Thor and it doesn't kill him or destroy him. And that's when I'm like, it's not real, right? This is a, and Luann, no, Thor is a comic book character. And you and I, if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing with Jesus. We know that he's God and he's the son of God and he's the Christ and he's the savior and he's immortal. You know, we know all of those truths about who Jesus is. But here, when Jesus becomes one of us, the Christmas story, Jesus becomes one of us. So when this text of scripture says Jesus is troubled, what that means is Jesus is agitated. To trouble something is like taking water and shaking it up. That's what troubled means. It means that Jesus is anxious. It means that Jesus is filled with dread in this moment. Jesus' heart is troubled as he thinks about his own death. That when Jesus is thinking about the cross and even what happens spiritually on the cross, Jesus is filled with trouble. And here's what I want us to take home with this, that Jesus is troubled. Jesus is troubled about the cross so that when you are troubled, you can think about the cross and that thinking about the cross will absorb your trouble that you feel. Jesus is anxious about the cross and his death so that when you are anxious, you too can now think about Jesus's death on the cross and that will absorb your anxiety that you feel in that moment. Here's the truth. What, what, how can you say that? Because here's the deal. The cross of Christ is God's declaration for the children of God that nothing will ever occur that is incompatible with his love for you. See, as Jesus is feeling anxious and troubled, it's not Jesus's death that he fears. It's not the anxiety of having nails through his wrist and being beaten and all of those things that ultimately What Jesus is dreading and what Jesus is fearing is what will take place spiritually for Jesus on the cross. That as Jesus is on the cross, Jesus will bear the punishment for all of our sins. All of the people who will ever trust in him and believe in him, Jesus will bear the punishment of God. Jesus will bear God's wrath. God's holy and his just anger, the Father's holy and just anger will be poured out on Christ on the cross. There's a word in the Bible that's used for this. Uh, The NIV does away with that word. The ESV, the English Standard Version we use, it brings that word back. And I think it's a good word. It's the word propitiation. I got a friend of mine that's a youth pastor. His name's Kevin Hash. He's in Versailles Baptist Church um, in Versailles. And this is what Kevin says. He's a, his incoming um, sixth graders, he, he sits them down and they're getting ready to you know, start into the youth program in the seventh grade. And he'll say this to him. How many of you can describe to me, tell me about uh, photosynthesis? How many of you can do that? And you know, hands will go up and he'll even ask them, then tell me a little bit about photosynthesis. And he's like, they'll get the gist of it right. And at the end of it, he'll say like, like if you can explain photosynthesis, photosynthesis, and you can explain propitiation and justification and sanctification. Like you've got the possibility. And we need to understand propitiation. And this is what I tell my, my kids. When you think of propitiation, what I want you to think about is a lightning rod. I want you to think about a lightning rod that is, that is lifted up, that will absorb lightning so it doesn't strike something else. And that's what's happening in the cross of Christ. 
Then the cross of Christ, Jesus is being given over as a propitiation. The lightning coming down is God's wrath that should have went to you. And instead of going to you, believer, believer, instead of going to you, it goes to the son on the cross. And this is what John writes, the same gospel writer that writes this. Later on in 1 John, he will, he will write this. He will say, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, there's the word, a propitiation for our sins. Look, look at that. Do you, a propitiation is being offered up. And why? Because God loves you. That's why you can look at the cross and know. You can look at the cross and whatever real life thing you're going through, the cross, the preaching of the gospel to yourself, the preaching of the cross, the reminding of your own heart and your own soul that Jesus loves me. This, you know, we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that is true. It tells us over and over again, it is God's declaration of his love for his people is found throughout scripture. But then the demonstration of God's love for his feet people is found in the cross of Christ. You never have to wonder. You don't look at your checkbook account. You don't look at how the condition of your marriage, the health of your own heart and life or your, or your children to say, does God love me? You don't look at those things. Where do you look to know if God loves you? You look to the cross of Christ. It is the demonstration. It is the declaration that God loves his people. How much did God love me? Well, he loved you enough that his son comes and allows himself to be troubled. He comes and lives a perfect life and then allows himself to be troubled and to be nailed to a cross and allows himself in that moment as Jesus is becoming that propitiation. The father forsakes the son. Like, I don't even understand how that works. But yet we know this, that there is a moment when the father forsakes the son and why? So that you will never have to be forsaken. The father forsakes his son to whom has been in perfect community for all of eternity, but in the cross as he takes on our real punishment for our real sins that you and I did on that cross, the father forsakes his son so that you and I as believers in him will never have to be forsaken. Jesus goes on, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come. I've come to die. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. And Father, this is what I'm asking you to glorify your name. That's the purpose, the purpose of the cross. Ultimate purpose of the cross is to glorify the name of God. That a name refers to a person. And a person has a reputation. We can name a name in here. Then I try to think about a name that, I don't know who, who. Somebody give me a name, just a person. John Calipari, right? We can think of John Calipari and then I can say John Calipari. And what enters into your mind as you think about that name? Winning as coach of all of basketball, right? The best of the best. Like, look, look, there's a, look, a name refers to a reputation. It re refers to a person. I'm sorry, a name refers to a person and a person has a reputation. That reputation comes based upon their character and their actions. That's what Jesus is praying here. Father, glorify your name. Make yourself known. Like may everybody see like, like your reputation, is what he, your reputation is at stake here. Reveal yourself. That the cross of Christ is a revelation of God. That in the cross of Christ, well, you want to know what God's like? You think about the cross of Christ. Let the God, let scriptures instruct you as to what's God like. 
I think God's a mean ogre in, in heaven, just waiting to zap you with judgment. No, that's not what the cross of Christ says. The cross of Christ says he strikes his son so that those of us who believe in his son won't have to be stricken. Like in the cross of Christ, we see God going to business, being just. He's taking on sin. He's not being small about it. He's not sweeping it under the carpet, but God's going to work. He's, we see justice. We see mercy. We see grace. And then a voice, Jesus says, then a voice came from heaven. I, it, it, so this is the Father speaking. I have glorified it. And I'm going to glorify it again. Like what he's saying is like, look back through the history of Scripture. Look at how I've been. Look, how, look at how I created. Look how I was with the patriarchs. Look how, I, how I've been in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. See how I was with my people. See how the blessings, see the promises made. See how I fulfilled those promises. I have been glorifying my name. I've been revealing who I am. I've been putting my reputation on the line time and time again to show that I'm a good God. I'm full of justice and mercy and grace. That's who I am. I've glorified it. I've showed it. I've revealed it. And I'm going to do it again in your death, son. That's what he's saying there. And then the crowd stood. They heard it. They said, it's thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. Don't miss this. This voice that you're hearing, it's, it's not come for my sake. It's come for your sake. Perk up your ears and listen. Hear what I'm saying. Know that what's going on. And then Jesus, starting in verse number 31, Jesus gives us those four ways in which the Father will glorify himself. The first one is in verse 31a. Now is the judgment of this world. God glorifies himself by judging this world. Now, a couple of things I think this one text of scripture helps us that may be misunderstandings that we have. The first way that it helps us is look at the timing of what Jesus says in verse number 31. When is judgment coming? Just three letter, three letter word. Now, right? Now. That's the key word, I think, in verse 31 is now. We see it twice. That the truth is, is God is not just going to judge people at the end of the age. But people are being judged. All who live on this side of history of the cross, they are being judged. And all the people who lived before, they are being judged in the cross. There is a future judgment that's coming at the end of age. In the final analysis, at the very end of the earth, there will be a judgment that will come, but that judgment will be more of a sentencing than a judgment to determine guilt or innocence. See, I think most people have the misconception you live your life here on this earth and then when you die, you stand before God and God judges you and he weighs in the balance. There's like a huge scale there. God takes all of the good stuff that you've done and puts it on one side and God takes all of the bad stuff that you've done and puts it on the other side. And if the scales tip towards the good, you go to heaven. If the t scales tip towards the bad stuff, you go to uh, hell. I think that's what most people think. And they hypocritically and foolishly try to live their lives like that. When they do bad things, they'll remind themselves of all the good that they've done. They'll try to do the whole like karma thing. Like, I hope it just equals out. I hope it all pans out in the end. But that's not what scripture teaches. We've seen it already once, I think in John, maybe chapter five. And we see it again here that now is the judgment. Christ, God is judging humanity in the cross of Christ. But here's what the Bible teaches all are guilty. 
There was only one who wasn't guilty, one who was innocent. And his name was Jesus. Scripture says that all have sinned. How many? All. All. Like those of you in the room that have toddlers, you know this. There's none innocent, right? And here's the truth. You were a toddler at one time. And guess how you acted? Like your kids acted. I could say that because my my daughter had a 20-minute complete meltdown because she wanted a cookie. It's like, I thought, I thought it was going to cast a demon out of her. She, give me my cookie. You're not getting a cookie. She's kicking the back of the seat. Ah, people are walking by. Somebody's not happy. Yeah, she wants a cookie. I'm not giving her a cookie. There was one time where I laughed. It's not funny. Give me my cookie. No, you're not. It is funny because you're acting ridiculous right now. And what they show, not even the cutest, and she is the cutest of the bunch. Not even the cutest are innocent. All are guilty. All have sinned. All have, how many? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is good, no, not one. That's scripture. That's just scripture. Now, have you done some good things? I hope you have. We've all benefited from some of the good things you've done, but those are not salvific things. Those were not enough to earn you any ounce of righteousness with God. None, zero. And God has already judged you. And when he judged you, he found you wanting. He found you condemned that all of humanity has already been judged and the judgment is guilty, guilty, guilty. Every person in here has broken God's law. And here's the way God's law works. You break one of them, you break all of the law. One law that you break is enough to damn you to eternity in hell. That's, that's just justice right there. So, I mean, we could go through the 10 commandments and I could ask everyone, and believe me, most of you have broken most of the 10 commandments. You have. So the cross of Christ is a declaration that we are guilty. It's a declaration that every one of us is condemned. Now, here's the deal. In the cross of Christ, those of us who who believe and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that in the cross of Christ, God is judging our sin in Christ. He's judging our sin as Jesus, as we've already talked, Jesus takes on the punishment for our sin. God is judging our sin, that sin must be punished. And here's the deal, sin, say that again, sin, all of us in here are sinners. Sin must be punished in order for God to be just. And so here's the deal, either Jesus, the perfect sinless savior, the perfect lamb of God can take on the punishment for your sin can do your time, pay your punishment on the cross, or you can for all of eternity in hell. It's just that simple. That's how the cross of Christ is the judgment for the world. It's for the whole world. Either there's no other options. That's it. That's why his son came. If there was any other options, why would Jesus need to come? He couldn't. He shouldn't. Why did you do it? He did it to bear the punishment for those who would believe in him and trust in him. So either you can pay for the punishment of your sin, all of sin and falling short of the glory of God, or you can trust in Christ. And for the believer in the room, this is such good news for us that if you are saved, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are hoping in him, if you've been made new and you have a new heart and you've been born again, if you're a follower of Jesus, the child of God, then I'm not just saying that you won't be judged. I'm not saying that your judgment hasn't happened yet. It's not saying that it's not even, that it isn't coming. No, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you've you've been spared judgment. No, what I'm saying to you is you have been judged. You were judged in Jesus. 
Your judgment was in the cross of Christ. Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we, believers in him, might receive the righteousness of Christ. That in the cross, Jesus takes on your sin. Not just your sin in theory, not just some vague sense, but all of your sinful actions, your past, your present, your future sins. They have been judged in the cross of Christ. Jesus takes on the punishment for those sins. And through your faith then, your faith in that act, your faith in that son, then Christ gives you two things. One, forgiveness for those sins. But second, he gives you his righteousness. That is the, the perfect moral record of the son is accredited and accounted to you for God's glory. That the father is glorified by doing this. That means he doesn't do it reluctantly. He does it willingly. He does it for his glory and for your good. Number two. God glorifies himself by casting out the ruler of this world who is Satan. Look at verse number 31b. When? Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Satan was defeated. He was cast out 2,000 years ago in the death and resurrection of Christ. But we also understand that it's not a complete casting out. We know that because Scripture post Jesus' death and resurrection, Scripture will tell us, um, you know, Paul will write and say, you know, be, be, be on the watch, be ready, stand against, oppose Satan. Peter writes, you know, uh, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, roars, roams around like a, like a lion seeking whom he may devour. So scripture tells us we've got to be careful. So it's not a complete, there's not a complete casting out here. But yet we also know that in some reality, Satan has been casted out. I mean, we, we understand this and we understand anything about history. We understand, uh, for those of you that are history buffs and enjoy World War II, that, you know, on what's, uh, I, I wrote down today, on, um, on Ju June 6, 1944, right, the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy. They invade into Europe. So they go into France. It's a, you know, it's, it's an enemy-held territory. They storm the beaches of Normandy, take great casualties in doing so, but any military strategist will tell you that the, the war was kind of lost for the Axis powers right then. That when the Allied were able to get their forces into the heart of Europe, it was just a matter of time, but yet it wasn't a reality. That victory in Europe day doesn't come until another almost year later, that on May the 8th, 1945 is whenever the you know, the, the surrender is signed. So from June 6th, 1944 to May 8th, 1945, again, they would say, hey, it was a real, like there's a real defeat. There's a lot of bloody battles happening before then, but this victory happens because of what happened on D-Day. And in the same way, as Jesus dies on the cross was D-Day for all satanic forces. It's gonna happen in the end. Revelation 20 tells us that Satan will be cast into the abyss, into the lake of fire for all of eternity. But until then, there's a lot of bloody battles that will happen. But let's look at three ways that we see Satan's defeat on three fronts. And I'll move quickly through two of them and not so quickly on the third. The first one is when Satan atta attacks Jesus's faith. 
How is Satan, Satan being defeated in the death of Christ? Well, constantly Satan is attacking Jesus' faith, undermining Jesus' faith in the Father. We see that even here, my soul is troubled. Who do you think is instigating that? Probably Satan. We saw that in the temptation of Christ. We'll see it again in the Garden of Gethsemane. But ultimately, the, Jesus will trust the Father and go to the cross for the Father's glory. Number two, Satan attacks Jesus' body physically. Satan is the one who will enter Judas. Judas will betray Jesus. Jesus will then be arrested. And so Satan's entering into Judas will set off a chain of events that ends up with Jesus dying on a cross. And Satan isn't like Jesus. He doesn't understand everything. The scripture teaches us that when Jesus is dying, like Satan's rejoicing. He's thinking that I've done it. I put it put him to death. I've killed the son of God. But what Paul says in Colossians 2, that in the cross, Jesus is disarming. I love that picture. He's disarming the rulers and the authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. So, so those of you Jackie Chan fans, right? You know how Jack, like the guy will come with the gun and then Jackie Chan will do the thing where he takes the gun away from him and then points it at the guy. That's what's happening in the cross. In the cross, Satan is pointing the gun at you. We're gonna kill you, we're gonna kill you. And then when Jesus resurrects from the dead, no, I've got the gun on you. I disarmed you. I took it away from you. I took death away from you, which leads to the third thing. Satan, he attacks Jesus, attacks Jesus' faith. He attacks Jesus' body. He does the same thing for us, but he also attacks the people of God. Satan attacks us and he attacks us in a multitude of ways. Satan tempts us. He, institutes per, he instigates persecution to thwart our mission. Satan loves to stir up disunity among the believers. Satan loves to introduce false lies and false gospels for us to try to believe. He's constantly lying to us, constantly propagating the broken lies of this world. But this is the important part. But there was one weapon that Satan possessed that could condemn God's people for all of eternity. In a multitude of weapons, Satan only had one that was the most, that was powerful, one that could damn us for all of eternity. And here was that weapon the valid accusation of our unforgiven sin. Let that rest a little bit. It's not original with me. That's from Dr. John Piper. So you got to let it rest a little bit. Revelation 12 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12 says that Satan stands in God's throne room day and night accusing God's people, God's children of their sins. Now, I don't know why God does that. Why does God allow him in there? Why does God allow him to do that? I don't know. I, well, I've got some inkling of an idea of why, but this is what's happening day and night. Satan is in there accusing. That's what he's called in Revelation 12, the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the brothers and the sisters, right? The brethren and the sister, right? We're both, he's accusing us of all of our sin. Now, here's the deal. When Satan's accusing us of our sin, that's, those are not invalid accusations, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I picture it something like this. When Satan's standing there saying, your child, your son, the one, the one who believes in you, do you know what they just did? They just thought this thought. They just said this thing. They just threw that fit. They just went there on their computer. They just, all of those things. And here's the deal. Those are not invalid accusations. That you and I, we have sinned and you and I continue to do sin but those are inva they are valid accusations of our unforgiven sin. 
what Jesus is doing on the cross is providing, he is paying the price for our sin. He is rendering those valid accusations invalid because they're no longer unforgiven sin, but they are forgiven sin. That Charles Spurgeon said that when Satan accuses you, when Satan comes at you and condemns you, your best strategy, he said, is to agree with him. But that's only half the story. You agree with him and say, you are right. I said those things. I thought those things. Even if it isn't Satan. See, Scripture says, First John, that our own hearts condemn us. Even when your own heart condemns you, sometimes you need to agree with your heart. You are right. I am a wretch. I am a sinner. I have done those things. I don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve God's forgiveness, but God, but grace. But then you tell Satan and you tell your own heart the other half of the story. You are right. I have done that. I did that. I thought that. I did that. But that thing, all of that has been paid for and atoned for and forgiven and covered by the shed blood of Christ. Listen to me, children. Don't minimize your sins. When you minimize your sin and you try to moralize your sin, what you're really doing is you're minimizing God's holiness and you're minimizing God's grace. Paul tells us that where sin abounded, grace all the more abounded. And sometimes in the confession of your sin, you have opportunity to do that. You have opportunity to recite how sin has abounded in your own heart and in your own life. And then you tell the other half of the story. And God's grace has all the more abounded. Like we say this often. I say this sometimes, maybe I should say. But sometimes whenever you have little sin, right, by a little sinner, that equals little grace and that equals little worship. And that's not even true. Like if the apostle Paul would call himself, I'm the chief of all sinners, where does that put me and you? Here's the equation. Big sin done by big sinners equals big grace. And the the end is big worship. That when you see the grace of God for all that he's forgiven you of, when you think of that and you retell that, when you know, yes, I did that. No, I didn't think that. Yes, you did think that. They deserve, no, don't do that. When Satan condemns you, when your own heart condemns you, agree with it. That's right, I did. And God loves me. And how do I know God loves me? Because of the cross of Christ. We sing the song, Before the Throne of God. And it goes like this. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair. You ever, you, you been there? Dear saints, have you been there? When Satan tempts you to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and I see him there, the one who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And then what comes next? Hallelujah. Hallelujah, praise the one, risen God, risen son of God. Little sin equals little grace and equals little worship. Big sin that all of us have done 
equals big grace. Number three, God glorifies himself by drawing all to himself. Verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, he said, in order to show by what kind of death that he was going to die. So we talked about this last week that in the, gospel, in the cross of Christ, what we see is this gospel paradox that the, if the Romans meant it for, for evil, that Jesus will be lifted up. When they said lifted up, it's lifted up as, as scorn, lifted up in shame, lifted up as an example that if you disobey the law, this is what you get. But when Jesus talks about him being lifted up, he's talking about being lifted up in glory, that I will be lifted up, it will be, I will be lifted up in glory. And what he's saying is God glorifies himself by drawing people to himself through the, through the cross. How did you become saved? How did you pass over from, from death unto life? Well, here's how it happened. You heard the good news. Some faithful saint somewhere told you about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Someone witnessed to you and shared it. Maybe possibly it was your parents. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a faithful gospel preacher that preached and preached about the gospel of Christ, the life, death, burial of Jesus and told you that Jesus' blood was shed for you if you trust in him and believe in him. And what happened? God, through that preaching, did a supernatural work in your heart, illuminated your heart, and God drew you to himself. Jesus drew you and said, come, I'm, I'm resurrecting you from the dead. Just as Jesus stood in front of Lazarus' grave and said, Lazarus, come forth. God did the same thing through your spiritual deadness, your spiritual grave, and he called you. And by what means did he do that? Through the preaching, the sharing of the gospel. It's Romans 10. That's why we share the gospel. Every time you share the gospel, God gets glory in that. Every single time that you tell someone about the death, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. God gets glory in that. Whether they receive it or reject it, God still gets glory in that. That's why we share the good news. That's why we tell the good news because we're putting God's glory on display as we tell folks about what Jesus has done for them. Why do we preach the gospel here? Because this means by which God is drawing people to himself through Jesus's death. That's why Paul, the apostle Paul says, I, I came to know nothing among you except for one thing, and that's Christ and him crucified. That's what we believe here at the Point Community Church. We know one message, that's Christ and him crucified. And why do we preach it week in and week out? Because believers and unbelievers both need to hear it. Unbelievers need to hear it because it's the means by which God will draw them to themselves. And guess what? Believers, you and I need to be, hear it because it's the declaration of Jesus's love for you. It's the declaration of Jesus's grace for you. It's a reminder of who he is. And if, if, if what Paul says in Romans, the eighth chapter is, he argues from the greater to the lesser. If, if Christ would take, if God loves you enough that he would put his son on the cross for you, then how will he not, Paul says, graciously give you all things? So the little small thing in comparison to you being a sinner, God will take care of that. How do we know? Because nothing's gonna occur in your life. You can trust God because nothing is going to occur in your life that is inconsistent with his love for you. How do I know that? The cross of Christ. We'll close here. I, I got one more, but we'll, we'll close. Believers in the room. See this text and know what your sin, my sin, costs the Savior. He is forsaken, so you and I do not have to be forsaken. 
Therefore, do not be flippant about your sin. Do not presume upon the grace of God by continuing in sin. God is trustworthy. We can trust him because all that he does is for his own glory. And when he is glorified, his people are blessed. We are provided for. We are loved. We are protected. We are taken care of. And for the unbelievers in the room, there's urgency in the latter part of this text. And I just realized I I didn't read it because in the ESV, they break verse number 36 apart into two sections. But after Jesus had said this and spoke this, this is the way verse 36 ends. It says that after Jesus spoke these things, he went away and he hid himself from them. That's a great tragedy to have Jesus withdraw from you. Now is the day of salvation. Really simply, have you repented of your sin? Have you confessed your sin and told God you're sorry for that sin? Have you named your sin? Have you said, God, I have done this, X, Y, and Z. I've lied, I've cheated, I've disobeyed my parents. I've stolen, I've mur- I don't even know. I've had a mul- adultery, I've lusted, I've whatever else. Have you, have you said, God, I've done those things and I am sorry for doing those things and I'm asking you, God, to forgive me for those things. They got, I, I wanna understand that your son dying on a cross is to cover and to atone for those things and I'm asking you to, to make me new. By his blood, forgive me, but also by his blood, Make me new, and I don't want to do those things anymore. That's what repentance is. Real heartfelt, we pray that, and we say that. Have, have you done that? And you have you followed Jesus as a sign of your obedience, as a testimony to your believing in Jesus? Have you followed him in baptism? Since baptism is a public declaration that I'm with Jesus. Jesus' blood covered me, covered my sin, and I'm with Jesus. I'm going to live for Jesus. You heard the questions that we asked before we baptized someone. And have you done that? And if you, if you haven't, why are you waiting? Don't wait. Verse 36, in Jesus, he hid himself from them. He went away. He shared the gospel with them. They rejected it. And then Jesus, he hides himself from them. He's judged them. Their rejection of him is enough for him to judge them. Don't, don't do that. Pastors like myself and Pastor Frank, Pastor Brian will be in the back, standing against that back wall. We love nothing more than to pray with you. Say, I, I, I need to pray that prayer. Help me to pray that prayer. Believers in the room, if you're flipping about your sin, then remember what it cost you. And this is a representation of what it costs you. Jesus' broken body represented in this bread that's cut up. Jesus' blood that has been shed represented in this grape juice that's poured into these cups. After I pray, we will have an opportunity for us to respond to the preaching of the gospel. You can respond by, if you're a believer, we invite you to come and to take the Lord's Supper. If you are a repentant follower of Christ, that means you're not trying to live for yourself, but you're trying to live for Jesus. If you have been made new, born again, adopted into God's family, one of his children, trying to learn how to love him and live for him. If that's you, then you can come 
And we invite you to come with us and participate in this family meal of remembering Jesus's death for us. Like I said, there's bread here that represents Christ's body that's been broken. There's juice here that represents Christ's blood that's been shed. You can take this bread, take a cup of this juice. You You can take it standing here or you can take it back to your pew and you can eat it there. Pastors will be in the back, offering baskets that are in the front and in the back. It's also our time when we take up uh, our offering. If you'd like to give to the Point Community Church, you could do so by dropping a check or whatever cash into an offering basket. We're also going to be standing and singing. Let's go ahead and let's stand. Let me pray. Jesus, superintend this moment by the power of your Spirit. Be near to us, Jesus, in this time. Draw near to us. Speak to us, Lord. Some just, we all need to hear the gospel this morning. We all need to be reminded of it. So I pray that even in this time, as we, we take like a visual demonstration of the gospel, that we will remember it. We'll remember who, whose we are that is with this. You have purchased us and we belong to you. You've ransomed us. That you've freed us from the cruel taskmaster of the, of the law and of Satan and of this world that we've been freed to know you and to love you and to live for you. And may we do that with our, our very lives. And we live that, as the text said, as we go and try to live as sons of the light, shedding the light in this dark world. And we live like that as we, we do good for your fame and we share the gospel. And we live like that as we keep ourselves from sin crucify ourselves, deny our flesh, live for you and for your glory. Lord, for the, those in the room this morning who have yet to place real, genuine faith and trust in your, in your son, Jesus, do what only you can do. Resurrect the dead this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.